Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Scientology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and this episode we learn about what makes a cybercrime investigator. I don't mean that in the abstract sense of what characteristics they might have, but in the more concrete sense of what it was that led a particular individual to become a police officer, a cybercrime investigator, and then what led them on from that field. We are joined by Kenrick Bagnall, who has retired from being a detective constable at the Toronto Police after more than 17 years of service. He's also the host of ConCyber, the podcast, and is a respected speaker at events, which is how I met him. Kenrick is also a really nice guy who is generous and open with his conversations, so it is a pleasure for me to have a good excuse to chat with him and to share his story with you. So let's not waste time, and we'll let Kenrick explain how it was he came to be a cyber investigator with the police force. My tech influences came from my father. His early training was in diesel mechanics, oddly enough, and that's what allowed my family, my mom and my dad and myself, to immigrate to Canada in the late 60s from St. Kitts in the Caribbean. And in coming to Canada, my dad then went to college to do industrial electronics, so he was very techy. And my early influences were schematic diagrams on the kitchen table and circuit boards as my dad would bring work home to try and solve problems that were nagging at him. So my early influences were probably before I was a teenager, just seeing that stuff around and being intrigued by it and learning from it. And then I ended up doing engineering technology in college and just started my tech career with Philips Information Systems. And it took a while for me to actually realize they were paying me for this because it was fun. And I was working with the R&D team because they'd send me out a board and say, test this out. And the board was like it was hacked together in someone's garage because there were wires and jumpers and pieces hanging off all over the place. And and I would just write a report on what worked and what didn't work, send it back, and they'd make the mods and send me back the revision to keep testing. So that was, I guess, early days of getting into comms and networking. And then I ended up getting recruited by a bank in Bermuda to go down and migrate their network over to Cisco and then ended up getting an opportunity to work for Flag Telecom, again, based in Bermuda. At the time, they were building out a submarine fiber optic cable system that started in the south of the UK and ended in Japan with 13 landing stations. So I spent two years as IT manager there at Flag. We built out the network operations center, built the billing system, customer information database. And it was a lot of fun. I thought I was going to come back to Toronto, but that didn't happen. I ended up getting an opportunity with a small sort of mom and pop financial services company that I guess had ambitions to grow. So they hired me as their VP of technology to help them create an in-source outsource model because everything was outsourced to a third-party provider at the time. And as a financial services company, their tech was limited because they basically were just doing savings and loans and they had one system that ran all of that. But they had greater ambitions in terms of providing products and services and they wanted to become a bank. Bermuda, unlike other jurisdictions like Guernsey and Cayman and Isle of Man, where they have more banks on paper than anywhere else in the world, probably. Bermuda's banking system is is very secure, regulated and controlled by the the ministry and the Bermuda Monetary Authority. And we applied for, when I say we, Cubans Financial Services, applied for the first 
banking license that had been issued in Bermuda at the time in over 100 years. And we were issued that license. The, the company rebranded to Capital G Bank. And from there, it was full speed ahead, building out online banking, brand new teller system, you know, putting in ATM machines and all the stuff that a proper bank would need to service customers, putting in a new data center, a new retail operations on the ground floor. It was a lot of fun and six and a half years went by in a blink. So at this point now, with two of my three kids being born in Bermuda and trying to make decisions about what would be best for our family, the decision was made, it's time to go back, quote unquote, home, go back to Canada. And uh, in, in returning to Toronto, I incorporated a business and started doing some consulting. And the only problem with that was, you know, I wasn't running a charity and, and <laughs> there was more money going out than what was coming in. So obviously some decisions had to be made about what the most frugal option was going forward. I mean, with a young family and a mortgage, you got to make some decisions. So I decided, well, you know, I've got a pretty strong resume. I'll just go back to the private sector. But I think the challenge for me was that I left Canada as a senior network analyst and then returned as a senior VP of technology for an offshore bank. That on paper, it looks and sounds really good, but the, the reality was in terms of getting a job back in the industry, a lot of doors were closed with the label overqualified. So I, I thought, well, you know what? I've really got to start looking at some other options. And in the wings, there was this other option of law enforcement. A friend who was already a, a member of the police service said, you should you should apply because we need people with your skill set. Everything is moving this way. And his name's Chris. I said, you know, Chris, you must see something in me that I don't see in myself because I was always raised to respect the law and law enforcement, but I never saw myself in that role. In joining law enforcement in any Western country, you have two options. You go on the sworn officer side or you go on the civilian side. And to enter the role that I that at least Chris saw at the time that I would go, which would be digital forensics, I would need to go on the sworn officer side, which means at a slightly older age, a slightly more mature vintage, I would have to go through the training and be on the road in uniform and shift work. But taking a more pragmatic approach, I decided, well, let me look into this and see really what the pros and cons are. And there were a lot of pros, you know, a good salary, good benefits, job security, and again, with a mortgage and a young family, it all seemed to make sense. And the, and the pros were definitely outweighing the cons. So I decided to do the research and get the information and apply. Just before doing that, I, I, I consulted with my main trusted advisor, my dad. And he says, I think you should do it. I mean, you have to understand also in the Caribbean, working in law enforcement is, is a highly respected role. If you work in banking or you work in law enforcement in the Caribbean, you have a really highly respected and almost admired and revered job. So my dad said, you know what? I'll even pay for your exams, your police exams. And I said, well, dad, you don't have to do that. And he says, no, no, I want to do it. I know you haven't been working for a little while and I, I just want to do it. Like, And my dad, that's, that's my dad. It was just like a, a gesture from father to son. So I said, okay, okay, to come up on the offer. And I don't believe in coincidences, right? I, I should say that. I, I called up the testing company to book my first exam, and they gave me a test date. The test date was February 4th. It was my father's birthday. So fast forward, I passed all the exams. I went in for the, the physical testing. And next thing I knew, I was being contacted for the in-person interviews. I went to those, and 
I sat there nervously waiting after two or three hours of being questioned on various things. The uniformed officer came out and said, well, can you stick around for the written psych exam? And what was I going to say? No. <laughs> I said, of course, sure. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, oh gosh, I have to write a written psych exam now and I'm starving. I haven't eaten. I've been here for four or five hours between waiting and being interviewed. So I stayed and I, I did the written psych test, which was well over a hundred questions. And when I was done, they sent me off. And I remember driving home thinking, gosh, I wonder how I did. Probably not the best thing to do to write something like that on an empty stomach and your brain is not 100% sharp as it could have been. But that worked out. And next thing I know, I was being contacted for the in-person psych interview. Clearly, I had passed the written at that point. And I drove, I drove out into the city to the address, went for the psych interview. And it was interesting because it was really just a conversation about my life and my parenting and what life was like overseas. You know, it was more of a conversation than anything else. And the next thing I got a call from my recruiter who said, well, you're in the final stage. We're just completing background. And then they did something called a local focus interview where they actually sent a, an investigator to your home and then to speak with two of your neighbors to sort of figure out who you were and get some cooperation to your story, so to speak. Two neighbors of your choosing. So I, I selected someone who I had known since I bought the house and someone who was actually doing after school daycare for my then young children. And he came to my home, sat at my kitchen table, had a ginger ale, and we had a great chat. And then he went off to talk to my neighbors. And he was taking a while. And I was thinking, what is going on? Eventually, he came back and he says, well, your one friend thinks you can walk on water and your other friend plays cricket with the deputy chief. And I said, what? says, yeah, your buddy, he, he plays cricket with the, the current deputy. And I had no idea. I had no idea they knew each other. So a couple of days later, I received a phone call saying that they were going to make me an offer. Uh, I said to my wife, well, it's about to get real. And this is only two months in from writing my first exam. And if you know anything about the application process to law enforcement, it can take months and months and months, if not years sometimes. And everything just went through. So I thought, again, I don't believe in coincidences. The doors were open. And I'm also a person of faith, and I did apply a measure of prayer to it. And I kind of said, well, you know what? If there's one closed door, I figure I'm done. But that didn't manifest. Every door was open. It was really smooth all the way through. So I'm thinking, well, maybe this is where I'm supposed to be. And then I started my training, you know, and here I was. Full disclosure, I was a 42-year-old rookie, which is not something you see every day. And then later on television, there was that show called The Rookie. That was me. <laughs> that was 100% me. Uh, and I, I went through the I went through the training, which was interesting. I was selected to speak at graduation on behalf of the entire class, and I was given an award by the provincial agency, which was fantastic. And on top of that, when I graduated from my municipal class, I was selected as class valedictorian, which was a huge, huge honor. Needless to say, that was a huge moment of pride for my parents. Again, coming from Caribbean culture where law enforcement is so well-respected, right? So a lot of support and a lot of encouragement from my family, my parents, my wife. My kids just thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> Daddy's a policeman now. But I went into it eyes wide open thinking, well, I have to do my coach officer training. I have to do my time on the road in uniform, but I'm looking to get to intelligence and work in digital forensics. That's the goal. So after putting in my uniform time, which I'm not going to lie, it was a lot of fun. These are the things that most people read about in books or they watch on TV. 
or go to the movies to see. You know, I live that, the vehicle pursuits, the foot pursuits, the tension, the stress. And I think that the irony of it may have been before law enforcement, so many strangers saying to me, oh, are you in law enforcement? Are you in military? And me saying, no, I'm a computer guy. And ending up in that space and really feeling comfortable. So I got through my coach officer training and my probation. And then I had the opportunity to go to intelligence and talk to a detective and find out about digital forensics. Here it is. I'm finally here. And then I, I, I learned about what was involved with that role. And I quickly realized this was not for me. The job is important. The examination of physical evidence, capturing that evidence forensically for court, being able to speak to its validity, its continuity, chain of custody. Very, very important. But I think when you go from designing, building, and securing really large networks for banks, for fiber optic global infrastructure, to making an image of a phone or a laptop and securing it for court, which is not to oversimplify it or demean it in any way. Again, it's hugely important work. I just felt that it wasn't for me. So now I'm in a position where, oh my gosh, I went through all of this and now I'm here. Now what? What am I going to do? Again, being a person of faith, you're taught to seek wise counsel. So I, I did. And I spoke to some senior officers. And then I got another piece of advice from a, a senior officer who coincidentally enough was there on the stage when I gave my valedictorian speech. And he approached me afterwards and he says, here's my card. I'm going to be following your career. Reach out anytime you need some advice or input. So I did. And one of the things he said to me was, I know you started this career late and there may not be the, the opportunity to advance from a promotional perspective, but you don't need a rank to influence change. And those words resonated with me. So I, I put my head down and I focused on the investigative path, taking the courses, search warrant writing, investigative interviewing, forensic interviewing, major case management, and so on and so on and so on. I just soaked it all up. And then the pivotal moment came when I got an email from Chris, he gave me the heads up and he said, hey, this is happening. And what, what this was, was the agency starting a cybercrime unit. And I thought, hey, maybe this is it. <laughs> maybe this is why I'm here. It's not that it was groundbreaking. It was not reinventing the wheel either. I mean, other major agencies had already done it. The FBI was one of the leaders in that space at the time, and certainly in Europe as well. When I got wind of it, I sent my resume right away, putting my hand up, pick me, pick me. I eventually was contacted. I got a, a call and said, hey, we have a position open in January. Are you interested? So I calmly said, well, sure, I'm still interested. Meanwhile, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh my God, this, <laughs> this is my calling. This is what I'm here to do. So I, I did get an interview, which was really interesting because I, I walked into the interview thinking I was going to be interviewed by the detective sergeant who actually helped start the unit. And I sat there waiting, and then she rolled out her chair and said, okay, everyone gather around. And they'd all done their open source on me, and they had they had looked at me on social media and stuff like that. There was actually a picture on social media of my wife and I dancing at a wedding, and one of the guys, he said, this guy likes to have fun. We need him in the office. So the interview went really well, but it, it still took uh, a number of weeks before I heard from them. And it was on a Friday, and I still can remember the call, where the detective sergeant called and said, yeah, everyone loves you, and you've got a great resume, and you got the position. So I thanked her, and 
I waited till I actually packed up my stuff, got into my car, and I was driving home, and I literally screamed with excitement. I was, I was, I was elated. I was super, super happy, and contacted my wife, my, my parents, everybody was. It was, it was great. So now I'm in, I'm in cyber, and it was a new unit, and we spent most of our our time and effort supporting the field and helping with more not pure cyber, but cyber related events where the technology was supporting a mainstream criminal offense like criminal harassment but it was just being done through social media or something like that and the unit quickly had to evolve and it became and has been for a while a very hot topic cybercrime investigations i don't think i was 90 days in the office and opportunities to engage externally were coming up i think the first big one was canadian security magazine they had a series called focus on and whatever the on was at the time, uh, maybe it was healthcare, security, maybe it was whatever. And they were doing a focus on cyber. And I was given the opportunity to go and speak at that. There was also a lawyer there who, by the way, him and I are very good friends today. But I was saying, hey, you know, we're the police. If there's a cyber crime, call us, we can help. And he was saying, if your company's compromised or your business is compromised, don't call the police. They can't do anything to help you. So afterwards, him and I had a little chat. We had a coffee. And I said, hey, we actually have a unit that focuses on these things. We have it provincially and we have it federally. And we're working together. There's a lot that's going on. So if I fast forward years later, there have been, been cases where he'd be representing a client as their breach coach. And he would reach out on a Friday and say, my client's been breached. And then Monday, he'd call back and say, okay, the board wants to report. When can we set up an interview? So the, that was, I think, huge progress. The unit grew and we went from doing support of cyber-related incidences to now having 25 personnel in the unit and admin support staff and civilian analysts and working major cases. And when I say major cases, I mean multi-country projects through Europol. Was there a case that you worked on that you would say, that you can talk about, that you would say is like your feather in your cap, like the marquee moment working in, in cyber? There were a few that would easily fit as a response to that question. I think a lot of them were, were group projects as well, but from an individual perspective, and there's the old cliche, no man is an island or woman, I suppose, because you can't conduct the investigation without help, right? You have a, generally a partner that you would work with. If evidence is seized, you need to work with the digital forensic guys. <laughs> but I would say that, yes, there was one case. And it was a case that was originally brought to our attention by the United States Secret Service. And it involved the criminality of SimSwap. And SimSwap is basically a fraud that allows the adversary to take advantage of the fact cell phone users can easily pivot from one carrier to the other or easily replace a device that's been lost or stolen. And they use various means to have the phone number of the victim moved to a device in their control. So we had a, we had a matter concerning a, a specific target in Canada that was brought to us by the Secret Service. And we didn't have much to go on because we didn't have any victims in our jurisdiction at the time. And in fact, the target was outside of our jurisdiction. But very quickly on the heels of that, we did have a criminal complaint that we responded to. So now we have a case. And I told my supervisor at the time that I wanted to run with it. And he was very, very supportive. His name is Sean, one of the most amazing supervisors I had in my 17 and a half years in law enforcement. And he said, go for it. So I did. And my partner and I worked this case and we were able to form our reasonable grounds 
based on some information received from our U.S. counterparts. Multiple warrants were written and subsequently endorsed because our target, again, was out of our jurisdiction in another province. So we had to work with the provincial agency in that province and the local municipal police in that city. But we were able to get a search warrant, seize evidence. And what was really interesting at the time, and this is the stuff where you talk about our imitating life, and it sounds like it could only happen in the movies. But when we when we executed the search warrant, the subject of our investigation was not there. He was actually on the other side of the country. So some quick genius work by a, a U.S. agent, along with my partner, were able to figure out where he was, what hotel he was at, the rental car company that was used. And I corresponded with my counterpart on the West Coast and provided my information to obtain my warrant. And he used that as the grounds to write a warrant to the hotel room and then was able to get in there and seize evidence. But prior to that, the local police were watching the vehicle and he came out and he was on his phone and he was arrested on the strength of a Canada-wide warrant where I believe the ink was barely dry because we got that wheel turning as soon as we found out he wasn't there in the residence where we're executing the warrant. So. Now we have him in custody. And then my partner and I uh, flew out to the West Coast to return him back to our jurisdiction to face charges. We had a very strong case and it, it took a while. A lot of this was during COVID, unfortunately. So that did slow the process. But from criminal complaint to the actual sentencing was two and a half years. And you mentioned feather in the cap. I picked that one as an example because it was the first of its kind in Canada. And one of the charges that was laid by the Crown was impersonation with intent. Because during the course of committing this criminality, the accused would impersonate legitimate members of telephone carriers in contacting affiliate stores. And it's a serious offense in that the criminal code in Canada allows for the I don't think seizure is the right word, but allows for a DNA demand, basically, upon conviction. And the case is unique because on what was otherwise a joint submission by the prosecutor and defense counsel in terms of the charges and also, in fact, suggestions for sentencing, the one contentious issue was the DNA. The Crown wanted to get it and the defense argued against it. So the judge, in her wisdom, ordered a psych evaluation of the accused and, and some reports submitted before she rendered her decision. And the decision was really just on sentencing because it was a guilty plea on all charges. And I'll add here, in eight and a half years as a cybercrime investigator, I've not seen one case actually go to trial, which speaks to, I think, the quality and strength of the investigation, compelling evidence, and, and also the quality of the case that the prosecutor put together and how well it was argued at the pretrial stage. So eventually, the judge, in her summation of the case and rendering sentencing, did order the DNA and basically saying to the accused, we want to keep track of you. It's, it's challenging because I think, and I think the human side of it really speaks to, well, you're a sworn officer and you have a job to do, but there's some empathy there. I mean, I can't speak for every officer. I, I can only speak for myself in saying that there's empathy because... You're a parent, too, and you have children of your own, and you're seeing the anguish and, and challenges that the, the parents of the accused are going through. And I got to tell you, I really felt for them. I really did. In my heart of hearts, I really felt for them. I and mean, my role and my responsibility and my job to advocate for the victims notwithstanding, I still felt that. And it was really, really difficult. But you can only hope at the end of the day that the accused learns a lesson 
and turns their life around and learns from their mistakes and all of these cliche things. We hope that there's some substantial reality and fact to that. That's what I hoped for in this case. There was a really sad element to this in that the accused lost his father through the middle of all this. I was told that it was through a heart attack. I don't know if it was stress-induced by everything else. And that was horrible. I actually contacted defense counsel to pass on my condolences to the family. At the bail hearing, I actually spoke to the family and, and said, look, you know, I have a job to do. And if there's anything you need, please, here's my number, number reach out. So I tried to be as as transparent and as accommodating as I could to the parents of the accused and in and, and working with defense counsel. But for a lot of reason, I guess, just speaking to your question, that that's probably one of the ones that stands out the most and can be spoken to, even though I really haven't named names or any, any specifics, but I can speak to it because it has gone through the, the court process. It has concluded. Probably more recently, one of the more fun ones was just last April, and it was publicized as Operation Cookie Monster, which was an FBI-run lead op with about 21 countries worldwide. It was the takedown of the Genesis dark market. Our team had some involvement with that. There's still some litigation going on with that, so there's really not much else I could speak to. But the, the opportunity to work on global projects, I think that's huge. And I think that's what's changed a lot within cyber. Certainly from an execution perspective, but also from a perception perspective, because going back to my early conversations with the lawyer back in 2015, who thought, well, don't call the police, they can't do anything. I think the message then was, yes, call us because we can, and a crime has been committed. The message now has been, well, don't put too much weight in the perception that whoever did this is halfway around the world and nothing can be done. Because the reality is, and indeed the message is that law enforcement is working collectively on major projects and in teams. They are working across geographical and legal jurisdictions, and they're working together on business email compromise and ransomware. To get your thoughts on something, there's two ideas that float around, and to me they seem contradictory. The first one is the internet is global and anonymous, and it makes it difficult to catch criminals, so it's a good place for crime. I guess that's a space understanding of how cyber is different to the physical world. Spatially, it's different. But then there also seems to be a lot of criminals who get caught because when they started, they perhaps didn't have criminal intent or their skills were low in terms of criminal operations. They were learning as they were going along. So their ability to maintain their anonymity is kind of compromised by the fact that everything on the internet is recorded and it has this temporal element where things don't go away. They hang around and your, your digital traces are, are semi-permanent in a way that they're not in the physical space. I feel that the general conception of the spatial element of cyber, allowing people to be in different jurisdictions and di difficult to find, is in conflict with this temporal aspect of the internet in that young criminals growing into experienced criminals still have to deal with what they did when they were script kiddies. And law enforcement might be slow, but it is determined and it is an institution and it doesn't forget and it doesn't give up. It just continues on with the resources that it has. Yeah, and patient. My belief is cyber criminals are 
at their lowest common denominator, human beings, and as such are fallible, imperfect, and make mistakes. It doesn't matter how skilled of a social engineer, coder, malware developer, or whatever they may profess to be. They are human, and they make mistakes. The Dutch police have a great tagline, and I even went to the trouble of getting their approval to use it in my jurisdiction. And their tagline is, everyone makes mistakes. We're waiting for you to make yours. And I love that. I'm a big fan of Dutch law enforcement. I just think they're doing a lot of really, really good things in that jurisdiction. We talk about the temporal nature of the internet. And it's interesting because I've described the internet as, as being ubiquitous and omnipresent. It is just everywhere all at the same time. And for cyber criminals, for anyone really with any decent knowledge or basic skill to obfuscate their identity, location, it's it's not that difficult to do, but there's fallibility in that the tech sometimes fails and humans make mistakes. A cyber criminal will try and obfuscate the source of their attack, and then they'll turn around and access social media using the same IP address that they just committed a cybercrime with. Or they'll use some really cheap, low-level, instable tool that will glitch and momentarily drop and expose their actual IP address. So all sorts of things happen. And then you factor in the human side. I mean, look what's happened with the Conti ransomware group and the Conti leaks that were all over social media. Cyber criminals, they're not just criminals, they're human beings. Human beings are highly imperfect and they make mistakes. And I think it behooves law enforcement to be vigilant, to be consistent, and to be there for when those mistakes are made to gather the evidence and to make a case. I think your comment or question, I guess all rolled into one about law enforcement moving slowly, but still not going away. That's the job of law enforcement. It's really not that complicated. Keep the peace and enforce the laws. And it's no different in cyber. And it's the patience. It is the vigilance. It's the hypervigilance, really. It's the, the, the cooperation and coordination across jurisdictions on international projects. It's the sharing of intelligence. It's the real-time communication. I had a ransomware case where the initial investigation pointed to IP addresses in a, in a foreign jurisdiction. I contacted a colleague in that jurisdiction. Within 24 hours, I, I knew the data center where my victim data was exfiltrated to. Now that that doesn't happen because I'm a great investigator or I have superior technical skills. It simply happens because some basic investigation was done and I communicated with a colleague halfway around the world and said, hey, have you seen this? That's how we're moving the needle. Law enforcement can only move as fast as, as the judiciary moves and it is slow. It is not a speedboat. It is an ocean liner that can take the hit, but it takes forever to turn. You've decided to move on from the police force. What was behind that decision? And what is your dream for at least the near future? What was behind my decision to leave law enforcement, and I've been gone now, I guess, about two months, and it's flown by. It feels like it's only been a couple of weeks, really. But in working through my law enforcement career that started late in life, and I was fortunate enough to end up in a place where I was enjoying the work tremendously and really leveraging my background in information technology and working on some great cases with some great people. 
the common thread through a lot of that was the early advice I received. I took the investigative track and I did not allow my rank to prevent me from trying to influence change. I kept trying to push the envelope. I kept trying to engage. I kept trying to do a lot of things. And through my entire working career, I've always felt it's been about balance. And I always give younger people this advice in terms of career planning. It's all about balance. And the balance always needs to work in your favor. Now, it could be monetary compensation. It could be training. It could be job satisfaction through the work you're doing. As long as everything works in your favor and the balance works in your favor. I mean, the pendulum could swing momentarily, but as long as it's not a long swing and it comes back in your favor at some point. For a couple of years prior to me leaving law enforcement, which again was only a couple of months ago, I found that that pendulum started to swing. And trying to continue to do good work and influence change had become much more challenging. Arguably, a part of that was in terms of internal support and the ability to do what I believe I was best at in terms of how I could contribute overall. If cybersecurity is a team sport, then investigating cybercrime is the, the ultimate team sport. You have to work together within your team and, and globally as well. And I found that through different leadership, my ability to make my contribution to that team was being stifled and the balance had started to shift. You don't need rank to influence change became very challenged. I didn't feel like I could influence the change that I wanted to, and it became a point of frustration. So at that point, I I started to make the decision, well, if the support's not there, if the job satisfaction is not there, I have to start thinking about other options. I'm not 22 out of school and starting my career. I'm at a point now where arguably, if I can continue doing what I enjoy doing, and they say, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And that's kind of what I felt I had, but that started to change. The final decision was made in January of this year, where there were a couple more nails in the coffin (laughs) that solidified it for me. And I said, okay, that's it. I'm done. So at that point, I just started making the decision more pragmatically in terms of crunching the numbers, in terms of retirement, pension, et cetera, et cetera, and thinking more and more about what I want to do next. I did have support through that whole process in terms of people who'd been through it already, people who were about to go through it imminently, and good advice on on the financial side as well. But the decision was made for me. If I had to make the decision on my love for the work and my enjoyment of working with some of the colleagues that I worked with, I would still be there. There's another saying that says, I won't miss the circus, I'll only miss some of the clowns. And I don't miss the circus, but I do miss some of the clowns. I worked with some really, really smart and fun people within my agency and within my team specifically, but I don't believe that the overall support was there. I feel I'm really lucky and really blessed to be in a position where I could say, okay, well, I don't have to stay. I mean, I think if I was earlier in my career, the decision would be more difficult and far more complicated. But in this case, it really wasn't. What do I want to do now? I think I still want to contribute to the space in terms of bringing the best of what I can to it, which is really educating, training, raising awareness, and being an advocate in the space, leveraging my technical background with my investigative experience and my knowledge of investigating cybercrime. I don't think that there's a lot of people who have had the opportunity to support a business by building and securing its technology infrastructure. And then at some point later in their life, actually investigate the individuals or groups that try to compromise that infrastructure. I have, for whatever reason, been good at public speaking. 
I even entered a public speaking contest when I was in my first year of high school and I won. And I still have the certificate from it to this very day. So being able to go out and present on it has been not just a gift, but just an opportunity to say, okay, I, I can help people and I can help individuals and I can help organizations. And if I can prevent a, an organization from being breached and keep that company up and running, I don't know if I'm saving lives, but if I'm saving jobs, I think I'm making a positive impact that way. So what I'm doing now is I'm spending some time trying to put together the details of what is next. I know part of that is writing. I am working on a a series of ebooks for kids that focuses on raising awareness for kids and online safety. The book is targeted at the parents to get involved, to have their kids read these books, or if they're younger, read the books to and with their kids and make them aware. My time in law enforcement and in cybercrime investigation showed me that the age demographic in terms of group vulnerabilities are the seniors and the children, the little ones. So not to ignore the former for the latter, but I, I made a conscious decision to focus on helping kids and, and making a positive influence on them at an early age in terms of being safe online, but also saying, you know what, a lot of kids are very tech savvy these days, but they may not necessarily see the career opportunity there because when they're 12, they're not thinking about what they want to do for the rest of their life. And, and showing them, hey, this is actually a profession. This is actually a business. This is actually an opportunity where you can have some fun and, and, and get into this as a career. So I'm, I'm, I want to spend a lot of time doing that as well. I'm, I'm also working on a book that, that, that speaks to my journey from being a technologist to becoming a cybercrime investigator and, and everything that was involved in that journey. So writing is a part of it. Consulting is a part of it. Definitely evangelizing and speaking on the subject is, is a big part of it as well. And I'm excited. I'm super excited because I think more than anything else, I feel I'm in a better position now to influence change, advocate for the vulnerable, and wherever I can help guide the victimized, whether it's an individual or an organization. I call it Kenrick 3.0 as I've gone from technology to to law enforcement to, the, I guess, the third phase now. And I think the biggest positive out of all of that for me is being in control of that destiny. And they say, no matter what, you always have a boss. But at least for now, I think I'm in charge of keeping that balance in my favor. And uh, I think for me, that's the biggest decision of being able to be in control of influencing positive change. Well, I look forward to seeing you out making positive change and I'm looking forward to see the publications from you sometime soon as well. Thanks very much for your time. All the best and keep keep doing what you're doing. No, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate having this opportunity to share. Thanks again to Kenrick Bagnall for sharing his story and for helping bring some foundation to my thinking about what drives cybercrime investigators. I will have to note that we chatted for close to two hours while recording that interview. And while a lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor, I hope that his respect for his colleagues, his supervisors, his family, and all of their advice really did shine through in the finished product. I will, of course, put the links to Kenrick's podcast, Con Cyber, if you would like to listen to some more of him talking, and his contact details if you want to ask him about his writing projects or any of the other things that he's up to doing. In the meantime, though, 
This has been Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. While it's produced by me, it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimology.com. I still have that account on X Twitter, although I'm really not sure what that means anymore. But as always, you can send me an email at cybercrimology at gmail.com.